I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, Seth, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. It's fun to be here. Yeah. Um, we're talking about a big topic today. Uh, before we get into it, we should probably just remind everybody what we're doing on this. So uh, this is the King and Culture podcast, uh, really created with the people of Redemption Church Gateway in mind, trying to just give greater depth and greater theological richness to our understanding, and particularly thinking about how the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel is always inherently part of our missionary encounter, is that there's always a bit of a confrontation with culture. And um, so in the sense that we're um, critiquing the hell out of culture, that's what we're trying to do, is see the hellish aspects of our culture that really seeps into our own lives and our own hearts, and try to expose that a bit and and cast it out with the truth of God's word. Absolutely. It's important to see that uh, in all cultures and everywhere in the history of the world, uh, no culture has been a perfectly faithful reflection of the heart of God, whether it's been even Christianized cultures or predominantly Christian cultures are not 100% faithful. And in fact, most are not even close to that. Uh, and that's part of our doctrine of sin is that it's not just individuals who are sinful and broken, but it's systems and values that are opposed to God that exist in every cultural uh, sphere, both past, present, and future until Jesus comes back. So it's not personal vendettas against Western American culture, but it's just saying this is the one that we're in, and every culture would have to be critiqued by the scriptures. Yeah, so that just gives you a sense of where we're coming from. Big picture as it relates to this podcast. Today, we're talking about decolonizing deconstruction. Decolonizing deconstruction. We'll unpack what those words mean. It's been interesting to me, though, Seth, that as I've just mentioned to a few people that we're going to be doing an episode about this, the reaction from the few people I've told has been like, ooh, that sounds important. That sounds interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that. And I think that probably has more to do with the second word of deconstruction than it does the first word. I think people will go, well, what do you mean by decolonizing? And we'll get there. But today we're really kind of addressing the issue of deconstruction. Um, That's not a new idea. It's not a new term, but man, it feels like it has picked up momentum and picked up speed in our current moment. Yeah. The whole idea is that to deconstruct something, there's something that is there that needs to be dismantled or taken apart so that something else can be put in its place. Yeah, like I think if, about like Demo Day on, uh, you know, Chip and Joe on HGTV, right? That's always a yeah, you get out the good ham- kind of You get out the hammer and smash stuff so you can put something better in its place. And at its best, that's what deconstruction is, is it's a form of moving from one degree of maturity to another. You are saying, I have a bunch of immature views, and I want to take those down and replace them with healthier, more biblical views. This is kind of part of the process of development theologically in general, is you grow up thinking that Jesus is in your heart. This is what I was taught. You know, you're a Christian when Jesus is in your heart, and you visualize as like a five-year-old, a small little stick figure type person in your nice, you know. How did he get in there? (laughs) Nice little Valentine's Day shaped heart, and Jesus is in my heart. Uh I'm a Christian. And in order to deconstruct that, you know, remember going to elementary school, and they show you a picture of a real human heart, and you're like, that's not what I get on Valentine's Day. That looks way <laughs> uglier and way more messy, nasty. And then eventually you realize that Jesus being in your heart is not even a literal, his location, speaking of his geography, it's talking about who is animating and shaping your affections. And so your heart becomes a metaphor. And being in your heart is more about who's controlling your thought processes and your affections. And so that kind of maturation process is a form of deconstruction. You had a view 
um, the scriptures speak to you, you have now a better view. But that includes a tearing down and a building up. And so deconstruction, in the one hand, could be construed positively as maturation theologically. Yeah, I think I think the reason this is so interesting to me is because as much as that's where deconstruction, what it could be, so often it doesn't feel like it is. And it feels like in the last number of years, there have been a lot more people, uh, public figures, but also just people I know and people, uh, friends of people I know, who have gone through this process of deconstruction, and it hasn't led to any kind of reconstruction. It's just been a deconstruction of the faith, and it's resulted in a leaving of the faith, of a denying of the faith. And there's a whole term now, right, of exvangelicals, right? And there's lots of books, and there's lots of blogs, and there's lots of podcasts, right? There's a whole podcast devoted to people sharing their deconstructing stories um, and help helping people deconstruct and, and that sort of a thing. And so with all the momentum that f- feels like it has, it feels like, this is something significant to talk about. Yeah, and the, the other key word in this that is closely connected to is decolonizing. That's another word that is ramping up dramatically in use. Mm, and yep. so the whole idea of decolonizing is you have the, the bad guys or the colonizers who come in and impose because of their power and their position and their military might, they colonize these uh, now uh, victim groups of people and impose their cultural values onto them. And so especially in, in with 2020 being what it was and the racial ethnic unrest is decolonization has really been asking the question, what are the ways that white power structures have been oppressing uh, non-white persons through their cultural values? And so you end up seeing a lot of talk about Christianity being a white man's religion or Christianity Um, imposing its uh, cultural force, not just its Christianity, but also like kind of taking aspects of, quote, white culture and part of that white culture being Christianity and how it's never really been about evangelizing, telling the nations about Jesus. It's really been about white people imposing their cultural values on non-white people. And so a lot of colleges and universities right now are talking about decolonizing the curriculum, which is basically a way of talking about we need to have less... Uh, white people or white historical voices shaping curriculum. We need to have more non-white people um, speaking these things. And so your curriculum, which is predominantly white, now needs to be um, at least representative. If you're and, and there it's not even mostly just about skin color as much as it is about Western, European, kind of the cultural values connected to whiteness. Yeah, so the height of being a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right. which is... Uh, that, those all kind of get lumped together. And so Protestantism and whiteness as a sociological category are seen as one. And so one of the goals of decolonization, uh, especially when talking to secular humanists, has to do with removing the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant influence over uh, pedagogy and process and teaching and curriculum at universities. And so where these meet a bit is that a lot of the people that would be doing deconstructing would also be doing a lot of decolonizing. And part of what we want to say today is that there's actually some decolonizing that might need to be done of the deconstructing. So without getting ahead of ourselves, maybe let's let's uh, zoom in on this word of deconstruction. So we've talked about what it could be. You've talked about kind of the positive vision of it. But when you think about deconstructing as it's happening in our world today with the people that we know, with the public figures that we hear about, what is deconstruction in that context? Well, biblically speaking, when we talk about deconstruction, I want to first say Uh, and this does feel significant, is the first deconstructor that we see in Scripture is Satan himself. Genesis 3. 
God speaks, Genesis 1 and 2. Satan shows up, Genesis 3, and asks the question, which is designed to erode what is there, did God really say? And that question drives the majority of unhealthy deconstruction. Did God really say? Mm. And what ends up happening is a lot of these people, um, in the name of uh, deconstruction, end up demonizing themselves and sounding a lot like Satan. And they end up approaching God's word, approaching God, approaching God's authority in the same way that Satan does with a shrug. Meh, did God really say that? Mm. And what ends up happening in particular is you have these evangelical leaders, pastors, authors, uh, musicians, musicians, therapists, whatever you want to call them, who end up doing to others what Satan does to Adam. Adam's in a position, uh, we, we don't really know Adam's full internal process, sure. but Adam's in a position of believing what God says. And then here comes Satan who says, did God really say? Yeah, it's interesting even just that Satan doesn't come out and say, God didn't say that, but he sort of makes you doubt yourself. That's what he does in that question. Did God really say? And and you see Eve sort of backpedal and go, uh, 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 you know, and it's it's that casting of doubt that, that makes it feel like this isn't just a quest for the truth or a quest for meaning. This actually feels like it's got a bit of an agenda. Yeah, the, the agenda is destruction. And it, the agenda is separation from God. And I, I just want to begin the outset and go that if we are surrounding our ourselves with these voices that end up sounding more like Satan, there is this reality that they affect us and they get into our heart, they get into our mind, they get into our soul. And this is different because one of the other things that we see, so in this situation, um, what the deconstruction is getting at is God and God's authority. Did God really say? In contrast, one of the most famous deconstructors in history we have is the person Jesus. (laughs) But what he's deconstructing is different. And the way he does it is different. And the way he does it is different. One of the main thing, ways that Jesus teaches is he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. So that what you've heard what it said is what he's talking about is human tradition. He's talking about uh, the interpretation of what God has said. See the Yeah, that's the major kind of structural form of the Sermon on the Mount, at least, you know, chapters five and six. Yeah. You've heard this, but I say. You've heard that, but I say. Yeah, it's important that what Jesus is saying to speaking to these religious leaders and followers who would know the Old Testament He's not saying, God said, but I say. Right. He's saying, you've heard it said. And what he's quoting is actually misinterpretations or misapplications of the Old Testament by religious leaders. And so he's mm-hmm. critiquing Jewish tradition. He's not critiquing God's word. He's critiquing the application and the interpretation of Scripture. And this is one of the most helpful forms of uh, deconstruction that I think is legitimate. And that's one that Jesus models for us. It's saying, have we interpreted the scriptures rightly? Have we applied the scriptures rightly? And the answer until Jesus comes back is not all the way. We have not perfectly done that. We never perfectly do that. No tradition is infallible. No church is infallible. Every tradition is approximating to the truth, and we're doing our best to rightly divide the word of faith, recognizing that we don't do it perfectly. It's just like scientific process, scientific inquiry. It's just like you can misinterpret scientific data. You can misinterpret scripture. That does not mean that the scientific method is inherently flawed. It doesn't mean the scripture is inherently flawed. But humans who are fallible are interpreting scripture and applying it and passing those things on to their children and their families. And so there are traditions that need to be critiqued by scripture. It's not our traditions that are meant to be critiquing scripture. And that's the difference between Satan's way and Christ's way of deconstruction. I think what's so challenging for me 
when I think about those two differences is I think for a lot of people that start down a path of deconstruction, it starts, at least in their mind, it feels more like the Jesus way, but it ends up kind of leading into more of a, of the Satan way, right? Like I I don't think most people explicitly get in. I mean, we can talk about different motives. I mean, sometimes people are deconstructing because they have sin in their life that they want justified. Oh yeah. So so that's, that's a big that's a big factor. I don't want to say it's the only factor, but it's a big one. Yeah. On that note, one of my main mentors, a guy named Daryl, he's be the president of Phoenix Seminary. Remember him telling me that he'd been a pastor, I don't know, 40 years or something like this. Him telling me that over the course of his ministry experience life, he's had a number of friends, a number of uh, people who are coworkers. I forget the exact number, but it's more than fellow f- pastors. Yeah. Fellow pastors, more than five, all who over the course of some journey in their life and story, had come to uh, not see the Bible as infallible any longer or not see the Bible as inerrant any longer. It's now this Bible is just, is it really authoritative? Can we trust it? Did God, did God really say? And that's the position they came to. And they had all these intellectual reasons uh, for why they thought that. But what ended up happening is all of them, without exception, over the course of the next five, 10 years, it came out that they had been having affairs or had hidden pornography addictions or had unresolved trauma or loss in their life. And it was actually a moral problem that they went looking for justification for to to feel good about or to feel better about that maybe if this isn't all that so it ends up being like you end up looking so the heart leads the head in this regard sure sometimes your heart doesn't want to submit to god's authority so your head goes and find reasons to justify what your heart wants right we've kind of said that before here where it's like what the heart wants the mind justifies yeah and that's the that's the ordinary human process as we are loving people who are made in the image of a triune God who is love, our affections, our relationships tend to drive our head and not the opposite. Yeah. And I think that might be an important thing uh, for any of you who are listening, who are kind of in a little bit of a deconstruction mode and questioning mode is, is a little bit to even ask yourself, why am I questioning the things I'm questioning? Um, and if some of it is because I'm looking for a reason and an excuse to do what I really want that's contrary to the scripture, then I just would encourage you to be honest with yourself if that's part of the reason. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily everyone's only reason, but for a lot of people that seems to be a significant reason. Um, Yeah, I think think one of the other big reasons is I kind of gotten that in Colossians 2 verse 8 where Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit in accordance with human tradition. And so there's almost like this in a desire to be in accord with popular culture, popular human tradition, there is this uh, vulnerability to being taken captive by these pagan or sub-Christian philosophies. And that is what I think one of the most important questions on decolonizing this deconstruction process is who is critiquing who and by what means are they being critiqued? Okay, so I want to come back to that. Let's put a, Let's kind of put a pin in that and come back to it. But I want to stick on this motive question for a little bit um, because it does seem like, so, you know, we're driven partly by our own kind of moral intuitions. I also think there's this dynamic that kind of leads us down a road of potential deconstruction. Um, You know, uh, it's been pointed out by one of our friends, Seth, that, you know, oftentimes when there's a difference between a stated doctrinal belief and a lived out ethic, that especially the next generation doesn't question the ethic they question the belief, right? So you say this about how men and women are 
equal with distinction, but you actually don't function like they're equal. You function like there's a hierarchy here. And because your stated belief doesn't match your lived out ethic, Mike, I'm not going to say, hey, why don't we reform your ethic? My instinct is actually to go, well, there must be a problem with your belief. And so sometimes that is that is what people are getting at. And um, I think that's another thing that's maybe helpful to consider. It's a huge aspect because a lot of the times what happens is in others, we like to attribute their failures to their doctrines, their beliefs. You know, it, whether it's someone who's a Muslim or someone who's an atheist or you know, if you find out there's a mass shooter and he's an atheist, you're like, well, this is what happens when you don't believe in God. Right. You do bad things versus when the mass shooter is a Christian and then secular media is like, see how white Christian terrorism, terrorism is ruining. You know, and so yeah. we love to attribute it in others, especially when it fits the narrative or when it supports our tribe versus other tribes. Yeah. And so recognizing that temptation to tribalism, which is not a great way to approach trying to know the truth, tribalistic motives, is, is very real. And I think that this reminds me of this text in Matthew 18 when Jesus says, if anyone of you causes these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to tie rocks around your neck and dive into the ocean. Yeah. Basically he's saying it's going to go really bad for you on judgment day. Mm -hmm. If you cause my little ones to stumble. And I think we need to see that cutting both directions, Mm -hmm. both doctrinally that when people come out and say, did God really say, and then you have young ones saying, I don't know, did God really say? And then they buy into this deconstructive nonsense. Simultaneously, for us who are not theologically deconstructing, but we are slow to repent or we're slow to um, own responsibility for pain we've created, when we are the ones causing people to doubt doctrines because of our um, unrepentance or our poor ethics, yeah. we are also causing young ones to stumble. Yeah. And it's we're in danger. And so there is a reality that uh, even Jesus here being next gen oriented, <laughs> he's going, if you yeah. cause this next generation to stumble, yep. look out. Yep. And that has to do with moral and theological purity. So I, I think that people end up often in a place that sounds more like Satan, but I want to go back to that place. of I don't know that that's where everyone starts. I think sometimes if I want to give the most benefit of the doubt, there is a desire to just critique the tradition to say, you know what, there's been these other man-made additions to this, or there's been man-made interpretations of this that aren't correct. And I think that people who are deconstructing, are they think they're doing more what Jesus is doing. They think they're trying to get at the kernel of the real truth that's been sort of messed up by the bad ethics or by the bad tradition. Um, but often it does end up kind of leading into a questioning of scripture and a questioning of authority and a questioning of the faith as a whole. So why does that happen? Do you think? I can't speak for every person who goes that direction. I do think that part of it is, it's just demonic. Like I think demons are real. I think they want to create distance between God and humanity. I think they want to facilitate the spreading of lies. Um, they, they kill and destroy says John 10. I think that's part of the reason. I think another part of the reason at least with, with my close friends who have deconstructed, there is real hurt or pain. Mm. There's a stick it to him um, that, you know, where there's church leaders begin to represent misused authority. Mm. And 
as a result of suffering under that misused authority, whether it's suffering that is the product of the church leader's um, oppression or just mistreatment, or it's some type of psychologized projection that wasn't really there, but somehow was interpreted as being there. Mm-hmm. You kind of have a, uh, well, the reason they mistreated me is because of their doctrinal positions or their beliefs. And so there ends up being this kind of survival motive of I need to undermine their doctrine if I'm going to continue feeling okay about myself. Uh, And there is a, uh, to be frank, especially in this kind of market-driven reality we live, is there is money to be made Mm, in deconstructing things when you're a celebrity. You can sell a lot of books by saying, I've seen behind the curtain, let me tell you about it. Sure. And so we have to, unfortunately, examine our own hearts, even as church leaders, on there is just financial incentive on bagging on people. Yeah. That I think is, uh, it sells books, it it sells ads, it, uh, you're trying to carve out market niche when you dunk on others. Yeah. And that unholy profit motive drives people in a lot of directions, mm-hmm. not just unorthodox theologically, but also even in the name of orthodoxy, you can be about broadening orthodoxy and and driving wedges between people. Hmm. So let's come back to where you started to go. So we've called this decolonizing deconstruction. We said these things are often going together. A lot of times the people who are deconstructing are also concerned with decolonizing, but we're talking about decolonizing deconstruction, which seems to say that actually maybe there's something about deconstruction itself that is a bit colonial in its way of thinking. Absolutely. Well, there's a way of thinking about colonization that now even uh, some of the people that I read on the in Africa will talk about how the first colonization was with tanks, but the second colonization is with ideas, hmm. and how this these Western um, values and ideas, uh, especially um, post Enlightenment liberalism, is being exported globally, and it is uh, taking over and marginalizing. Christians in the global South. And so I hear and read about um, a variety of political activists in Africa who are talking about how these white Anglo-Saxons come to Africa and start promoting abortion and how that's the new colonization is through values and ideas like individualism, through, um, quote, reproductive rights, end quote, through uh, selection of who gets to reproduce on the basis of financial position. And a lot of these things that have marked, have been idols in American culture for a very long time. Now through social media and through various digital means, there's this second wave of colonization that's primarily through liberal Western values and not values that all liberal Westerners share, but this idea that we're going to reduce poverty in Africa by reducing the birth rate in Africa, which is not a Christian value. That's not a way that Christians try to say so probably. But there is like this um, a colonization of ideas, not necessarily with tanks, but with uh, thought processes. And so when I think about decolonizing deconstruction, I want to ask, going back to the satanic question, did God really say that we are always, so here's the big idea here, is we are always deconstructing a view with another view. Hmm. We are never actually in a neutral position, but we are using views to deconstruct other views. And so here's what I mean by this is... So so this is like, um, well, you were going to say what you meant, so go ahead. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so in particular in our current moment is we have a Bible and creeds and confessions 
that were written by majority Middle Eastern and African persons. You know, brown people. Yeah. Non-white people. And what we have simultaneously is the philosophy and the ideology and the epistemology of French and German white people who are therefore critiquing the Bible written by Neanderthalic Middle Easterners and creeds written by Africans and doctrines propagated by Africans like Augustine, Tertullian, and people like this. And so this entire postmodern process is driven by French and German idealism, French and German Enlightenment thinking, in particular Kant's view that there is the phenomenal realm and the noumenal realm, and the noumenal realm is just the realm of values, not the realm of facts, and that faith belongs in the realm of values, not in the realm of facts. And so if you think about it like this, you have German people saying what's wrong with brown people, which in the 20th century was a really bad thing, and right. it led to the extermination of millions and millions of people. But that's theologically largely what's happening now when people deconstruct. They and, are, and just and just to be clear here, we're not saying that because brown people are brown people that their ideas have any more weight, and because white people are white people, they their ideas have less weight. But we are saying it just it's just really ironic that people who would say, "Hey, you know, be careful about imposing white Western views on the world." That's what Christianity is. Do the exact same thing in their process of deconstruction and say, I'll deconstruct these other views with this white Western philosophy. Yeah, reducing the Bible to a record of man's experience of God written by man for other men to pass on to their progeny is a white Western view that is being imposed on biblical documents and creeds that are written by non-white people. And so that's the the tension that I see existing and why this whole deconstruction process needs to be undermined. In contrast, what we see is that predominantly what needs to be deconstructed is me. Mm. I need to be deconstructed, not the Bible. And yeah. this is the great backwards thing is that it is these leftist Western positions, and I don't mean just people who vote blue. I mean this entire view that I am basically good and I must be supported in my position. That happens to people on the far right and people on the far left. It is these types of positions that the human person is basically good and needs to be affirmed and not con- contradicted or, construct or, or confronted. And this basic idea that anything that comes into my circle that makes me feel dissonant needs to be gotten out of my circle. Whether and whether it's ideas or people or whatever it is, it's I have a thing, don't mess with my thing. And sometimes my thing is my culture, sometimes my thing is me. But this reality that Western culture and therefore us as individuals by extension, we are what needs to be deconstructed. Yeah. And that which needs to deconstruct us is the scriptures. And so the question is, will I use my Western culture to deconstruct the scriptures or will use the scriptures to deconstruct my Western culture? Those are the options. And so which one is an authority? And deconstruction is basically a function, is basically functioning right now in the popular movements of we are deconstructing the scriptures using predominantly white Western culture and it is totally backwards to the way that God designed it. That's incredibly ironic. I mean, it just really is. <laughs> it, the irony there is pretty thick to me. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important that we as Christians, we who want to follow Jesus, see that I am the one who is under the microscope, mm. that God is the judge that I am not. 
And this whole idea that the human person as neutral observer who's mediating between views and positions, that I hold the microscope and under the microscope I put the scriptures, this is entirely backwards and unbiblical. But this assumption that the human person is the one who's capable of doing this is a Western post-enlightenment view that we have gotten from somewhere. So in other words, we wouldn't even be deconstructing if it wasn't for the European enlightenment thinking. Yeah, we wouldn't be deconstructing like this. We yeah. might be deconstructing using some Eastern mystical worldview. Or, we or, might- or like Jesus saying, but here's what the scripture says. Yes. Yeah, we'd be, you know, kind of that principle of the Reformation, reformed and always reforming, right? That we're always reforming to become closer in line with God's word, to be more conformed to the image of Jesus, not to be less. Yeah, and so this this kind of idea is what I understand is us always having skin in the game. Our own heart, our own mind, our own will, our own desires are always in play. And as soon as we find ourselves pretending that we are these neutral scientific process people, we are actually buying into a worldview that is given to us by French and German idealists. And uh, is it, maybe not just French and German, but all the way from Descartes, you have, I think, therefore I am. You have this a priori view that I can have thoughts apart from my experience, which means I can be neutral, which means that I can operate on that which is outside of me fully scientifically. And by scientific, I'm, they mean the testable, observable, repeatable process. But this whole idea, what's crazy about that is even having a testable, observable, repeatable process is rooted in a biblical view of God's providence, that the reason that history is linear and not cyclical is because God is taking the world from one place to another. And so what ends up happening is you build arguments and foundations on biblical values like justice, love, a linear view of time, and then you critique the scriptures with them, and it's a self-defeating razor. Yeah. And so so many of the people who are even flinching towards deconstructing, whether it's uh, the authority of scripture or Christian sexual ethics or Christian views of hell, are doing so in the name of love and justice and peace and equality and human rights. And human rights. But there was no concept of human rights before <laughs> the, the biblical doctrine of the image of God. There is no concept of justice before you had the Imago Dei propagated and normalized and dignified across Western culture that was stolen from Christianity, or not even stolen from at that point, just Christianity. Just bloomed out of Christianity. Yeah, so critiquing the Bible through the lens of love and justice, when the Bible gave you the lens of justice in the first place, is self-defeating. It's mm. shooting yourself in the foot. But that's what we do all the time. Well, if God was love, then he wouldn't do this. Well, where'd you get the idea that God is love? The Bible. So what do you have now? Nothing. Right. And so it kind of, even when you think about the scriptures and you think about Jesus, C.S. Lewis talked about this idea of Jesus is either liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. You can't have just a good moral teacher who says, I'm God. It doesn't work. Right. It's same with the Bible. The Bible testifies to itself as being God's word. So saying, well, this is just a record of man's experience of God, that's not really an option because it's not. The Bible says it's God's word. So it's either lying or it's written by crazy people or there's internal consistency and validity to it. And so we have to just be honest with our limited epistemological process. We have to recognize how biased we are coming into this conversation, that this whole idea of deconstructing is actually falling captive to the spirit of the age. I'm like, by, to a, to a fault, 
resistant to scripts or what people ought to do. Like in high school when people started uh, drinking and partying, because mm-hmm. that's what you're supposed to do in high school. I didn't not drink and party because I was like walking in the fear of the Lord and loving Jesus. <laughs> I didn't do it because that's what everyone was doing and they thought they were cool for doing it. And I refused to be a part of following the script, you know, and so... You were a contrarian. Yeah, I was a contrarian. And so that's honestly a little bit how I feel about this deconstruction thing. Like whenever some new faith leader comes out and says, you know, I just don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. I don't know if the Bible's totally trustworthy anymore. It feels so sadly predictable because this is what the spirit of the age is commanding people to do. In the name of not submitting to God, they're submitting to the spirit of the age and they're subjecting themselves to satanic ideology, which says, does God really say? Mm -hmm. So uh, if we move kind of more in in a little bit of, if I can ask you kind of as a pastor, um, so someone comes to you and they have real questions. They have real doubts. They kind of go, you know, I've learned what I've learned in science classes and it just really makes me question things that I feel like I've been taught in the scriptures. And, you know, I have a lot of kind of questions about, could this really be true and how could that really work? And, and, and it's not coming necessarily from a place of like, I just have this sin in my life that I want to get out from under and you know, this is making me uncomfortable, but I, I have like real questions. I'm kind of a Thomas a little bit and going, you know, "Eh, but unless I can see the holes in your body, I don't know if I'm going to believe it. Um, and Jesus doesn't go, well, Thomas, you idiot. He shows him his, <laughs> he shows him his, the wounds in his body. Um, so what would you say to someone who's saying, you know, I don't know if I'm on a path yet of deconstruction, but I sure have questions and I sure have doubts. And hearing this, I kind of don't want to go down a path of deconstruction, but I also feel like if I don't somehow get some answers to these questions, I'm going to be stuck in, a, in an unsatisfying place, which I do. There, there are two big principles that I like to give the people. The first one is humility. And by humility, what I mean is believe from the outset that you are not asking original questions. Hmm. For some, it, When people start believing, I'm a free thinker who is asking questions that nobody else has asked before, you're in a dangerous place. That's a position of arrogance. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about how there's nothing new under the sun. There's just repackaged questions that have been being asked for thousands of years. If we think that people in the first and second century did not wrestle with the authority of scripture, we're fools because they did. Mm -hmm. These are old, thousands of years old questions. And thinking that all of a sudden people started questioning the authority of scripture in the 1970s is dumb. (laughs) Right. Or thinking that all of a sudden people started questioning the authority of scripture after Darwin is dumb. We don't know history. Yeah, so and, we should be humble. Yeah, we should be humble. Not humble in like the presuming that our questions are arrogant sense, but ask the questions humbly going, hey, other people have asked these questions before me. How have they made sense of these answers? Because they exist. And when we read history, and we read church history, and we read people who have done a ton of good work on apologetics, you realize that the belief that I'm a free thinker who thinks independently of other people is foolish. And it actually, that belief needs to be deconstructed because we're not. We're bound up in history. We're bound up with humanity. We're bound up in communities. And we're always wrestling through these things as communities. And so... So that'd be the first thing, is yeah, approach it with humility. Other people have asked these questions too. There are satisfying answers and there's a way to approach it that way. What what else would you tell someone who's the second doubting? Thing, the second thing is don't panic. Hmm. 
God's not in a hurry. Sometimes he will destabilize you because what you're clinging to is not actually him, but it is tradition about him. Our faith is in Christ, not necessarily in uh, even particular doctrines about Christ. He's a person. And sometimes what will happen is he will disorient or uh, jolt you from your position to kind of question. A lot of like uh, desert fathers or mothers in early church would talk about the, uh, the dark night of the soul, which is when God will remove his um, blessed presence from you to see if you're following him because you feel good when you follow him or if you're following him because he's worth following, period. And so this type of disorienting process is something as old as the Old Testament. We see it in the book of the Psalms where David is asking God, where are you? How long, O Lord? Why are you hiding yourself from me? And this process takes time, and it's cyclical. We go through periods where we are at rest, where we're disoriented, we're reoriented, and then we are at rest. And this kind of process tends to go through a cycle and it's part of the maturation maturation movement. And so being patient with ourselves as people who have to doubt in order to progress is part of what it, what it takes. And so this panic of, Oh no, I have questions. Does that mean that I, you know, am I out of God's hand? No, you're not. You know, the Lord is still ruling over history. He's still ruling over our hearts. And so we don't need to panic, but we need to. So the third thing I would say is to seek out wisdom Wisdom can come uh, ideally from communities, from people who have wrestled similarly and have grown in affection through Christ through the process. Uh, just like if you're looking for marriage advice, you don't ask go ask someone who's been divorced five times. You ask someone who almost got divorced, mm. you know, there yeah. or who uh, were div- who were who divorced and did it sinfully and have regrets and want to repent of it. Or you ask people who have helped others through divorce. And so there's, uh, one of the things that can happen is we need to find out, look at people and say, who do I admire for their faith? And I want to get proximate to them. I want to share a table with them. I want to sit with them. Sometimes those people aren't available. This is why we read books. (laughs) You know, there's folks like C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, John Frame, who have written extensively on some of these things. Um, there's a book on your desk called like 12 questions or 12. Yeah. Rachel McLaughlin. Yeah. Has, uh, I forget the name of her book. It's, I, I Confront, can it. It's confronting Christianity. It's yeah, like it's 12 so key good. questions. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. And she actually just released one for kids. Yeah. So just recognizing that wisdom exists, it's out there. Yeah. And sometimes the stories of people in the scriptures or even just more modern people can help lead us and guide us. But I think it's important to see that we're, we are relationally functioning beings. And so when we find, so the fourth thing is this, there's a self-awareness to this. What do I want? Mm. Right. When the question that Jesus asked at the beginning of the book of John, what are you seeking? So who's, am I questioning God or is God questioning me? And that's part of this process I need to ask. Am I asking Satan's first question? Did God really say, or am I being asked by God, Jesus' first question, what are you seeking? Yeah. Am I, am I after autonomy from God or dependence on God. Yeah. And in this process, I have his questions. Oh no, what do I do? Well, what am I seeking? What do I want? Do I want to with God? Do I want to be faithful? Do I want to make a name for myself? Do I want to sin without feeling bad about it? Do I want respect, admiration, 
what do I want? And so that type of self-deconstruction where the spirit asks you questions and you have to respond slowly over time in prayer is, I think, part of the process. Well, it seems like so much of where these conversations end up leading is related to the question of scripture. Yes. And can I trust the scriptures? And, you know, what does the Bible really say? Can it be trusted? Can it be reliable? How do you process that? And so it seems like that might be a good topic for us to get into in some future episodes. So uh, stay tuned and we'll do that at some point. But Seth, I appreciate uh, you uh, just helping us think through this. This is a deeply personal thing for a lot of us. And, um, you know, we just, we want to see the people that we love uh, walk with the Lord and trust him and enjoy the the abundant life that he really does give. And so uh, as we wrap up, any closing thoughts? No. All right. Well, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, no. Great. I guess we've gotten all our thoughts out. So, out of thoughts for perfect. the day. So, uh, thanks for listening. If you think there's somebody that would be helped by this, please share it with them. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>